Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. And the episode today is going back again to my uh, my past in the legacy finance um, career, the uh, the fiat system, where I invite a friend of mine, a long-standing friend, was also a colleague and was also a client um, throughout our careers together in foreign exchange. Uh, he ended up his career, uh, the bulk of it, uh, trading foreign exchange options for UBS, top tier bank. Um, so I, I wanted to try and help you guys understand exactly what life is like at one of these banks, what a position like that would look like, what are the um, kind of strategies that might be put on, what is an option, what is a put, what is a call, uh, how, well, you know, what does it look like to sit on one of these desks, where is the flow of the business coming from, and um, just to give you kind of like uh, the, a, a glimpse under the hood, if you will, of you know this this huge machine, which uh, is just churning all day, every day, except the weekends, uh, unlike Bitcoin, um, and how you might be able to kind of like connect the dots in uh, global macroeconomic landscape, and you know bring that all back to Bitcoin and how this might all tie into Bitcoin and the potential of Bitcoin if just some of this deal flow starts flowing in. You know, this is what really, really excites me and this is what keeps me a permable on Bitcoin. Um, if you've never picked up on that, then, uh, you know, I just said it. So I hope you enjoy this one. Um, it's really, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks to James for spending the time to do this. Um, thanks to uh, Hodler and Thou, so Badminton, for the, the music you can probably hear in the background right now. I love it. Uh, that's all part of um, his uh, Bond mashup uh, license to shill Agent Orange, which uh, you should definitely go and check out on 21ism.com. And as always, guys, uh, a big push for you to go start stacking some sats. Prices on the move. At point of recording, we were sitting around nine and a half thousand um, at, at this release. If you're listening over this weekend, it, you know we've blown through eleven thousand. If you're if you're sitting on the fence, if you're not stacking sats, now's the time to start. You know you're not too late. Um, you know head over to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten if you're in the UK, or go and hit up Swan. Uh, swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten if you are in the US uh, wherever else you are around the world go find your local uh, DCA dispensaries uh, they are hiding out there go check out Friar Hass he has the whole list at Friar Hass on Twitter and I'm sure he's got some affiliate links which I'm sure he'd appreciate if you were to use and follow those through it's time to start building that position in a nice steady like you know very very stress-free way just set it and forget it check back in five years and pat yourself on the back anyway let's get into this really appreciate you guys listening 
Uh, I've been getting a ton of feedback on Twitter the last couple of weeks. Really um, enjoy the banter. And um, if you can help spread the news of the show, really appreciate any retweet, any comment, any share. That's uh, about as much as you can do. And it's all very much appreciated. Enjoy the show, guys, and I'll speak to you afterwards. Thank you, as always. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Joining me today is a very good friend, an old colleague, an old client um, from my days in the foreign exchange markets. James and I spent many, many years in this field and um, we want to try and uh, lift the lid on foreign exchange and help everybody understand a little bit more about how the markets work and you know even what it is. Um, so James, thanks for spending the time today and uh, connecting all the way from Singapore. No problem. Thanks for having me on. And uh, Samuel is here to ask the first question today because um, usual co-host Lauren is at a uh, superhero party, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So um, now I worked in foreign exchange for a long time and I, I asked you earlier, um, well, what did I ask you? What's foreign, ex- what's foreign exchange? And I said, well, let's keep, that, let's keep that question for James, yeah? So fire away. Okay, so uh, at its simplest level, foreign exchange um, or forex tra- trading, FX, it's sometimes abbreviated to, is, is, is simply the uh, exchange of um, all the different world's currencies um, on a daily basis. Um, it's actually the world's biggest capital market, um, way bigger than all the equity markets. So everyone focuses uh, very much so these days on the stock markets, but the, the the foreign exchange markets are by far and away the biggest in the world. Some, I think, over five trillion dollars is traded on a daily basis, um, five days a week, twenty four hours a day. It's the only continuous um, uh, tradable market up until um, recently, Bitcoin, which is also um, now um, a continuous market. But um, it, it is still by far foreign exchange is still by far and away the biggest market. Um, trading from 6 a.m. on Monday mornings in Wellington to 5 p.m. close on on a Friday in New York. Um, And as I said, it's simply the exchange of all the different world currencies, U.S. dollars, um, euros, yen, um, right down the whole list of countries throughout the world. Does that make sense to you? It's just changing money from, from one currency into another one. Yeah, that makes sense. So what currencies um, have you heard of before? When I say currencies, I mean money. Euros, pounds. Euros and pounds, yeah. Um, That's a perfect example. So if we go to the UK, we have to change euros into pounds, yeah? Or if Nanny and Grandad come here, they have to change their pounds into euros. That is simply foreign exchange. Mm, I understand. Would you want to say thank you to James? Thank you, James. You're welcome. I hope I uh, explained it clearly. <laughs> so uh, thanks for doing this mate um it's been um been a long time that um you know we we were in this business um together and um i definitely uh find there's a lot of um i definitely find there's a lot of of kind of fear around uh, foreign exchange at um just the, the basic level and uh, a lot of misunderstanding as to, like you said, you know how big the market is and, and how much is being traded on a daily basis. Uh, so I want to get down into kind of like the, the basics of what's going on um, and what we saw from like the, the very sharp end of, of that business. But um, if you wouldn't mind, um, first of all, telling the listeners, you know, how you kind of um, 
found your way into the business in the first place? What what led you down that, that kind of rabbit hole? Uh, sure. So um, I initially started work um, in London, um, but in the equity market. So in in the in the uh, the, the stock trading um, aspect markets. Um, I moved to Singapore uh, 2001. Um, I wasn't particularly looking to get into foreign exchange specifically, but an opportunity uh, came up with your good self. Uh, I seem to remember all those years back. Um, and my journey into foreign exchange started from then, 2001, um, with yourself for a couple of years. And then I moved um, to UBS Bank, um, where I, uh, you know, began the bulk of my career um, as, as a trader in foreign exchange options, uh, which is a, a, another level, which we can get into later if you wish, another level of the foreign exchange market, a more niche, uh, smaller area of the market. Um, and I spent um, fifteen odd years at UBS, um, and until two thousand and eighteen. Um, but I still keep a good uh, keep keep an eye on on the foreign exchange markets, all the capital markets, and uh, you know, on a much smaller scale. Obviously, I still participate from a personal uh, standpoint as well. And what uh, you know, what would you say to? Younger, younger listeners that might be listening and, and thinking about, um, you know, following a route into into banking um, or trading of some sort, um, brokerage, um, because uh, you you spent. Um, what was your university uh, degree? Um, so I did um, economics at university, which is a you know fairly uh, typical uh, discipline for a, a lot of the people um, you know that we encountered in the in the industry. But having said that, it's not a, a, a definite requirement, and often there are um, there are times when you know a good diversity of academic disciplines are useful in the um, in, in the markets. You don't. I think there's a, a big preconception that you have to be a maths wizard or you know uh, you know uh, very scientific technical um, to, to work in the in, in the markets, whether it's foreign exchange or any other asset or any other product. But that, I, from my experience, I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, there's a range of skills um, that, that different disciplines bring to the table. And, and um, psychology is a big one in, in markets, how the markets move from a, from a herd mentality point of view and from an individual point of view. So, you know, simply being um, maths um, savvy is not always enough. So um, I, I would recommend it to a broad a range of, uh, uh, of of young people who, not necessarily in the maths and the science world, but um, enjoy um, a, a very proactive and reactive working environment. Everything is different every day. You know, you're reacting to unknown events, that uh, news stories, and obviously, you know, as we're all experiencing now, black swan events like. Um, you know, the coronavirus. So it's a very exciting, adrenaline-fueled industry. Um, um, so, so yeah, I, I definitely would recommend it for for, for people who, who you know who are inclined to you know have a high level of stimulus in their work and and you know exciting and staying up to, uh, up to date with geopolitical issues and you know just how the world works and it's very applicable to what's going on at the moment. I mean, we're living in in you know fast moving and volatile times, so it's definitely an exciting place to be and work. 
Yeah, that is for sure. Um, like the, you know, the, the, the highs you experience are, you know, I tried to explain it to somebody before, like you can, you can experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in about a minute. Yes. And yes, it, it's it's an emotionally it, it's an emotional through. roller coaster. Sorry to it's an emotional roller coaster. That's for sure. Um, but you know the highs the highs um, out, outweigh the lows. Uh, you know most of the time. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely a, a, a fun journey to be on. Yeah, for sure, man. All right, well let's um, let's get into it and ask you a question about. Um, what would a day look like? You know, I, I, people just really don't understand. Um, I don't think uh, like the the level of uh, complexity and um, kind of even what goes on behind the scenes. So if you could just kind of like walk us through what a general day would have looked like for you on uh, on your side of the fence. Yeah, sure. So just to to, to uh, elaborate a little bit of what I did. So I, I worked for a bank where I was uh, in charge of uh, trading particular currencies, um, on behalf of, of the bank's clients. Um, uh, so our, our customers were generally institutional, i.e. I, big corporations or other banks, and they're changing money or trading foreign exchange, you know, uh, euros into pounds or dollars into Japanese yen on a constant basis for a multitude of reasons, um, for, um, for companies that are selling their products in foreign markets, um, for example, say Samsung sell a phone in the US, they receive US dollars, but when they repatriate their profits, they have to turn it back into Korean won. So, you know, this is with global um, trade and globalization so um, uh, prevalent now in, in our world, um, the, the, you know, the demand for foreign exchange just solely in that aspect is, 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 is massive. Um, so my role would be to execute and run the bank's foreign currency, uh, foreign exchange positions uh, to facilitate trading for all these different customers. Uh, it's not just corporations, other banks are trading, even um, retail investors, you know, who've got you know, high net worth retail investors who may just be speculating. Um, so the foreign exchange is not just a functionary market, um, it's a speculative market as well. So people are t taking bets on whether the US dollar is going to go higher or lower versus a particular other currency. So I would get in about 6.30ish, uh, um, sometimes earlier, sometimes later. On a Monday, often in Asia, we'd have to get in at 2am, which is when the markets opened in at Singapore time, 6am Wellington. We'd spend time analysing the positions that we currently have, what the risk um, to those positions were was if particular currencies move in a particular direction. Um, and then we are involved in mitigating those risks by proactively trading in the market through someone like yourself, who's uh, you know a broker of, of for, for UBS and many other banks. Um, so we, we trade proactively to, to cover our risks and also to be able to build positions to help uh, facilitate um, customers being able to transact their deals as well. So the day is spent mainly analyzing your current risk, trying to minimize that risk, looking for trading opportunities as well. We're also encouraged to not just execute, but to 
um, provide opportunities to make uh, uh, P&L, profit and loss. Um, it, it's a lot of reading, keeping up to date with constantly evolving news headlines. Economic data is constantly coming out now. The, mo- the market is, is always focusing on that. So you have to be really, you know, up stay up to date with what, what's going on because um, especially with modern technology now, a lot of trading systems are actually automated and run by algorithms that can scan headlines and um, react to news far quicker than humans can. So it's a very fast-paced uh, environment. Um, it's not, you know, sit back for a day and analyze, and uh, although analyt- analytical skills are, are, are useful, um, but you, it's very fly-by-wire uh, seat of the pants kind of um, uh, environment to work in, um, and it's constantly dynamic, constantly changing, um, which is going back to what I was mentioning earlier. It's, it's what one of the things that makes it very interesting and and, and rewarding. Yeah, it's um, you're so right. So it's very very reactionary, which uh, I think is completely different. Um, situation to what would be happening in happening on a treasury desk in one of these corporations or even a hedge fund where um, I imagine them to be you know deeply analyzing things that are going on in in, in quiet rooms rather than um, like open space uh, huge dealing rooms where you and I both know people are just screaming and shouting across the floor because okay, the markets are linked right <laughs> you know um, it's um, it's pretty uh, yeah it's it's a a unique atmosphere, to say the very least. So you touched on um, earlier, uh, you were saying that, uh, well, you and I, we found ourselves working in um, the, the currency options, which um, is a derivative of, um, of spot foreign exchange. So could we just touch on, um, you know, what is the difference between what people might think of foreign exchange as we were explaining to Samuel, that being like um, a, a spot transaction, and then um, what uh, an option is? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a wide uh, array of, of, of options, a product that in market terms, there's only a, f- a fairly recent um, um, addition to the sort of um, availability of product in, in, in the market. And it's not just for foreign exchange. Yeah, there are options on um, all different types of assets, but we'll focus on, on foreign exchange. So option trading sort of came about really in the 70s, but only until really early 90s was it, you know, a widespread phenomenon. But put simply, uh, an option um, is the, and I'll quote a textbook um, kind of definition, um, an option is the right or uh, to buy or sell a particular asset at a particular price uh, at a, a particular point of time. All those uh, variables agree between the buyer and the seller of the option. Now, to explain that in more uh, layman terms, uh, you have I said buy or sell. So a buy option is a call option, and a sell option is a put option. So uh, perhaps a call option is often conceptually more easy to understand. So let's look at a call option. A call option um, is if I buy a call option off you, Danny, um, say on um, euros versus US dollar. That gives me the right uh, at agreed time, let's say we agree on a one-month period. In one month's time, it gives me the right to buy euros from you. So I take euros off you, and in return, I give you US dollars at an exchange rate. 
like an exchange rate you get at a bank, but we agree on a specific exchange rate that I think is um, g- going to occur or be be passed through in a month's time. So if, say, a euro today is worth $1, and I buy a call option off you with an agreed exchange rate of 1.1 or $1.10, I'm expecting the euro to appreciate in that one month's time. Um, so, for example, in one month's time, say the spot rate or the current exchange rate, if you were to go down to your bank and change um, to buy some euros uh, for your dollars, is now 120. I have this option with Danny that I can actually buy euros better than the current exchange rate, and I can buy them off him at 110 because that is the contract we entered into uh, one month previously on this call option contract. Um, so why would I want to do that? Well, there are several reasons. Um, for the privilege of doing that, I pay Danny a premium. Uh, um, that is calculated through the option uh, equation, which we don't need to get into here. Um, I pay him a premium. Why would I want to do that? Well, I may need to hold on to these dollars for the time being, but I expect euro to go up in a month's time. So how do I express that? Well, this call option is a perfect way to do that. I can make sure that I don't suffer from the euro going higher in a month uh, by buying this option. Now, if the, if, the, if the exchange rate does not change over this one-month period, it stays at $1, then the option I've bought off Danny is worthless. Danny keeps the pre- premium. He's very happy. He's earned a little bit of money for, the, for taking the risk on with me. And on my side, well, the option is worthless, and we just uh, abandon it. It's the, uh, it no longer is, exists after that one month. Danny keeps his euros. I still have my dollars. If I still need euros at this point, I have to go into the market and I buy them at a dollar. Um, so options are often a way to hedge. Right, perfect. A particular move. Sorry, I'm yeah. Go 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 on. No, go ahead. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, yeah. Yes. So, so options in that respect are a way to to protect or hedge, as, as the term uh, more often used in the markets, is to protect yourself from a particular um, movement in an asset. It doesn't have to be foreign exchange, but we're talking we're focused on foreign exchange. Um, I, I think a good example that may be more um, conceptually easy to to picture is um, airlines use options uh, um, a lot with with the price of oil. Well. Back in the days when we could still fly, airlines, when airlines were actually flying, they needed to protect themselves against um, the price of oil, because obviously it's a it's a big element of their cost structure, you know, to to provide the fuel for their planes. Now, they don't know what the price of oil is going to be in six months or a year's time. Now, but they have to make a budget and they have to work out all their cost analysis. So how do they how do they uh, account for this unpredictability in 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 oil? They they don't know what their cost basis is going to be in a year because the price of oil could be fifty percent higher or fifty percent lower. Obviously, it's good for them if the oil price goes lower, then their fuel costs are lower. But how do they mitigate against oil prices going higher? Well, one of the ways they can do this is they can buy uh, a call option on the price of oil. Now they have to spend premium on this to do so, but it, it, 
is a known cost. So in January of the beginning of the, year, of the business year, they can spend X amount of dollars on option, call options on oil, um, say for a year out, for a, a year's time. Now, okay, someone may say, well, why would you waste money on uh, buying an option? It may not be worth anything. True, but it's a fixed cost and they can incorporate that fixed cost, that known cost into their, their, their budgeting for that whole year. Now, if oil doesn't, change price fine their their fuel costs have remained constant and they're 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 happy they all simply they've just lost the premium they paid on the option if oil goes lower similarly they're happy as well because um fuel costs have actually got cheaper again the option is worthless so they have lost a little bit of money there but it was accounted for at the beginning of the year they they knew about it now the third scenario is oil for, say, a geopolitical shock, um, a war with Iran or something like that, and the oil price doubles. Now, an airline that was unprotected or had no hedge um, would now be suffering uh, from increased fuel costs and that they hadn't budgeted for. They couldn't predict. The, no one could have predicted a, 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 the movement in, in price from a geopolitical event that was... Um, that was not predicted. But the, the airline that had bought a call option on the price of oil back in January at the beginning of the year now has the opportunity to buy oil at the agreed rate, whatever the agreed rate was at the beginning of the year. So it is, it has protected itself against this extreme move in the price of oil. So its fuel costs are still at a, a, a tolerable level. Even though in the spot market, every other airline is having to buy at a, 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 a inflated rates because this airline was prudent and hedged itself with a call option, i.e. it entered into a contract with a seller to buy oil at an agreed le level at the beginning of the year, a, lo a, lower, a, a lower level or the current level at that time, perhaps. It, it protected itself and it provided transparency for its fuel costs for the rest of the year. And... Oil is settled in US dollars, right? So, we, you know, we are talking, this yeah. is precisely why a foreign exchange market is the, by far and away, the biggest market. You know, it's the world's reserve global currency. Um, and when like uh, like the commodity markets such as, well, just oil, I mean, let alone the other commodities that are settled in US dollars, this is why it's just, you know, streets ahead in um, volume terms of anything else. Exactly. And if you look at the example of, a, say, a non-US airline, so say um, Qantas, for example, needed to, 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 do, to do this kind of uh, hedge, they also, not only do they have to hedge with the, the cost of oil, but because, as you rightly point out, oil is settled in US dollars, but their Qantas's accounting and profit and loss accounts are all done in Australian dollars. They also need to account for the for the fluctu potential fluctuation in the US dollar against the Australian dollar. So they perhaps may not only um, execute uh, a hedge against oil price fluctuations, but they will also um, most likely ensure that they are hedged, possibly using uh, options against uh, US dollar fluctuations against the Australian dollar. And this is how everything flows, um, you know, to, to the top of the pyramid, really. And um, so if you could... Um Give us an example then. If if one of if one of these companies, um, 
So this is on the corporate side of things. Uh, I think people are now getting an understanding of why corporates are doing so much in in terms of um, foreign exchange. What about then um, just banks to banks? Why why are banks to banks doing so much foreign exchange with each other, uh, even if? Um, you know, and, and then perhaps we'll talk about uh, hedge funds as well, so we can get more of a rounded picture of who are pulling these levers and, and why. Sure. Well, the, the the banking system also is highly globalized, highly international now. So, you know, the idea of a domestic bank that only has to really concern itself with its own uh, home domestic currency, you know, is a kind of thing of the past now. So, you know, all, the banking sector has has kind of shrunk into um, a collection, a smaller collection of much larger institutions. And these banks, you know, names that everyone will be familiar with, um, Citibank, uh, JP Morgan, and then um, HSBC, all, all these, you know, international banks are, are not solely doing business in their own domestic countries. You know, they're, they're borrowing and lending money from all around the world for their clients, for their um, uh, for their uh, uh, retail customers. And so they're equally exposed to all these different foreign currencies as well. And they need to make sure that they have adequate reserves for starters, capital reserve requirements. They have to you know, have adi- adequate reserves, you know, certainly of all the major currencies. By major currencies, we're talking um, about the, the dollar, the euro, the yen, Swiss franc, the pound to a certain extent. Um, so to, to be able to transact business with their multinational clients um, and, then, and one of the uh, retail bank's big businesses, or certainly historically, has been lending money. And, you know, they have to be able to lend money in uh, any currency uh, that their, their customer demands. So, you know, they have as much invest, um, vested interest in 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 uh, dynamically trading these currencies, um, not so much from a speculative point of view. Retail banks are not hedge funds in the fact that they're taking a particular view on any particular currency, but they have to remain liquid. By liquid, they have to have the supplies and the ability to make transactions in a whole range of currencies. And hence, they are constantly rebalancing those supplies, that liquidity pool, uh, amongst, often amongst each other, as you, as you point out. Because those are the big liquidity providers. Those are the, still the main uh, sources of where um, the world's foreign currency um, uh, supply comes from. If you need it in large amounts. Yeah, and if we if we wind the clock back to two thousand and eight, when we were both sitting at our desks, and you know the the news starts coming across the wires that you know Lehman Brothers has uh, has gone bankrupt, has collapsed. And like the, the shockwaves that sent through the market, could you just kind of like uh, explain to people, you know, what a nightmare that was for for the banking system and for for people like yourselves that were trying to manage positions. Um, you know, you you might have had um, exposure to Lehman Brothers. Everybody did at the end of the day. And um, how was that handled? What did that look like? You know, that those those kind of few days after the after the the shock and. Um, yeah, if you just lift the lid on what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, those days, oh, they were they were a, a blur of um, adrenaline, very little sleep. Um, you know, there was 
constant uh, change and news out every second. Um, and with Lehman specifically, so so as I mentioned, all these banks are so interconnected. They each have um, collateral in each other's banks. They all have all these different trading positions, active trading positions on with each bank. And often these positions are uh, highly leveraged. Um, now, that means that um, it's a trading on margin. So you, you may only have $10,000 in your account, but with margin and you you want to trade a, an asset, it may allow you to trade uh, an asset total worth of 200000 um, so 20 to 1. So you put your 10,000 deposit down, but you can actually trade the trading brokerage or bank or wh whatever platform you're going through allows you to uh, trade assets worth up to 200,000. Now, that's great because it provides you liquidity when things are going well. Um, but when things are going against you, then the, the, the counterparty, the, the other side of the, the wants that their money back. Now, Lehman's were, is a grand example of that. So he, all these banks were, um, you know, have these leveraged positions on, highly leveraged positions on. And what happened during the panic was that uh, the counterparties to these positions, everyone wanted to just uh, repatriate all their money and get it safe, close positions down. Now, if this happens too quickly and in too uh, bigger fashion, um, you simply you don't have the collateral to the liquidity to be able to pay um, pay back you know these losses on these trades because they were losses at the time. That's why people wanted to close them down. They wanted to cut the losses, but Lehman simply didn't have um, the liquidity to be able to adequately um, fulfill its its financial obligations to its counterparties. So it was, it was effectively going bankrupt. Now, Lehman's wasn't actually the only bank going through this. It just happened to be that um, whilst several other big-name banks were helped out by the government um, and the government provided this liquidity, provided the funds to the banks to enable them to safely exit these positions without collapsing, for one reason or another, Lehman's was deemed to be the sacrificial lamb, so to, so to speak, and it was not aided in such a way. And so it simply could not afford to pay back its creditors, uh, its counterparties, and it had to file for bankruptcy. So uh, it's, it's, like a, the it's like a large-scale version of an old-fashioned bank run. Everyone, I think, knows what, you know, thankfully we haven't really experienced too many in the last 50, 60 years, but an old-fashioned bank run where people lose confidence in their local bank and they want to withdraw their money. Now, in the same way that investment banks like Lehman's are leveraged up with their positions in all these complicated assets, even the smallest retail bank through fractional reserve banking does not have, if it has a million dollars worth of savings um, of people's deposit savings in its bank, it has committed probably 10 times that amount to other counterparties. So it doesn't, at any time, your bank, and I don't want to create panic, at any one time, your bank does not hold enough cash to pay everyone out in one go. So when people lose confidence in mass, in a herd mentality panic, and they all run to the bank to withdraw their savings, the bank simply can't 
pay everyone off in that short space of time. Um, and the bank, if it's not helped out by an external source like the government, um, it will it will it will have to it, it ceases trading. It simply cannot um, repay everyone's accounts. And Lehman was sort of the ultimate uh, example of that. And it was a yeah, pretty pretty stressful few months of um, of, of, of trading, but uh, exciting as well. And uh, you know, definitely looking back now, it's a uh, you know piece of history. Yeah, for sure. And you know, with what's going on um, in recent times, and uh, you know, this this COVID um, kind of situation we we find ourselves in, uh, I think many listeners are of the, the same opinion that I don't even think we've seen like the tip of the iceberg yet of like the economic fallout that's going to you know happen. Do you foresee uh, something else like this happening, like perhaps another bankruptcy where there's just too much malinvestment in the background somewhere that is um, just lurking? Uh, yes, I, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's. It's a, a complete parallel situation to two thousand and eight. I think it's very different at the moment, but there definitely seem to be some worrying signs. Um, uh, you know, the, the the every government has definitely been, you know, chastened by the experience of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. You know, the expression "once bitten, twice shy." And so this time round, with the coronavirus-led uh, recession and market collapse, the governments and central banks around the world were very, very quick um, to respond quicker than they were last time, which you can understand the psychology behind that. They don't want to make the same mistake or be seen to uh, be too slow to react. However, they've provided such amount of support and liquidity, not necessarily to you know the average person on the street who probably needs it, but the 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 liquidity that is pouring into into the financial markets, which doesn't necessarily trickle down and often doesn't trickle down to uh, Main Street um, or you know just the average person, um, it, it just it winds up in in financial assets uh, such as the stock market that we're seeing now, and and it's it, it is kind of. Um, conflicting what we're seeing now we have a you know high unemployment rates everywhere around the world um you know gdp levels are falling yet stock markets are you know almost back to the pre um uh, pandemic levels that we saw back in february um which doesn't on the surface make too much sense i mean did companies that should be suffering and are suffering their share price is still going higher. Um, and th that seems to be a function of the amount of money that the central banks uh, are, are pouring in to provide with the, the motive of, of liquidity. They're trying to make sure that these com that companies that should be viable uh, stay alive just as long enough to get through this virus. That is the thinking of the central banks. However, it, ca it causes in my opinion, some unnatural distortions in that a lot of companies probably should be going out of business. And I don't mean that in a malicious way, but I just mean that they they weren't making money before coronavirus. They were financially uh, poorly run, perhaps. 
but they're also receiving the same amount of support that viable companies are. So, uh, you know, some people in the market call these zombie companies because they're just kept alive um, just to avoid damage um, rather than um, what a true uh, Austrian capitalist would say is, uh, you know, creative destruction, Schumpeter's uh, creative destruction, where you let, you know, you let the weaker companies fall uh, and go out of business and they because they create a vacuum and they reinvigorate uh, a, a new uh, a new business a new uh, potentially a new innovation and it keeps it keeps the market and the economy fresh that's the, that's the thought process but at the moment we're we're i think we're just very worried or the governments are certainly very worried about um, letting too many companies go to the wall and that's translating into highly inflated stock prices if you look at in terms of what these companies are actually worth their profit levels um and i'll just quickly add before i know i'm going on but i'll quickly there's another element to it as well that the the current trend for you know tech stocks a bit like back in 2000 you know with the internet bubble you know these companies are highly popular um so there's 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 a lot of sentiment trading by that i mean you know people Rather than looking from a financial point of view, they just they they uh, have a kind of an emotional connection to to these stocks. They think they're you know they're the future, they're uh, uh, environmentally and socially uh, um, beneficial, uh, ESG friendly, uh, and, and so there's a lot of emotion going into these stocks as well, rather than people analysing the balance sheets as well. Um, and whether that, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it, it's certainly one of the driving forces of the markets at the moment. Yeah, man, it's um, it's a crazy, crazy situation, and yeah, you, you're right. You know, it's um, uh, seniorage as it's uh, as it's called. You know, those uh, that are closest to the spigot of the money um, end up, you know, winning far. Well, like that, we're going to just see more and more inequality um, because yeah, the, the money doesn't flow down. It's just flowing into these financial assets, and it's just getting blown out of proportion, and it's just a crazy situation. And to use your yeah, like. The airline analogy again, you know, airlines at the moment around the world being bailed out is just completely and utterly crazy. If you consider if they weren't, you know, running a business that was going to be able to suffer like a two month shock and they need the bailout to the tune of tens of millions, and we still don't know when people are even, how are people even going to react to this? Are they even going to get back on planes? So we're keeping these zombie companies open. And available for business, even though we're very uncertain of the, you know, the, the demand in the future. So we're seeing national flag carriers being bailed out, whereas the entrepreneurial airlines like Ryanair and EasyJet and, and others, they, how can they compete? They're not going to get bailed out. They're going to, they'll be allowed to go to the wall. It's just a completely unfair playing field. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You know, it's it's these sort of prestige companies that, are, you know, like the flag carriers that the government simply, you know, it, it can't justify letting them go to the wall. Um, whereas from a pragmatic point of view, well, perhaps they should. Um, as you said, are we even going to be, uh, how long do we have to keep them afloat for? Um, uh, 
because, as you said, we may not be flying again anywhere near the levels we are even in a year's time. So, you know, what, how long do we justify using taxpayers' money? Um, and, of course, there are people involved. There's employees uh, that, that uh, you know, potentially could lose their jobs. Um, but if there's no demand for the business, there's no demand for the business. No, no matter how much uh, government support liquidity provision can act, they can they can shore up a company, but they can't create demand. Demand has to come from the individual. And if individuals choose not to fly or go on cruises or stay on hotels, perhaps we're all going to be doing driving holidays and um, uh, you know domestic holidays in our own you know the countries we live in. You know that that could be a trend that goes on for the next five years. So. You know, there has to be a line drawn somewhere, but I, I can understand it's difficult for governments to also, you know, let some of these prestige names, um, you know, some car makers as well. We saw the US do this in 2009 with Ford and General Motors. You know, by rights, one of those probably should have been let, you know, let out to pasture. But, you know, these are these are iconic US names, Um in the same way, you know, Lufthansa is getting help from the German government. Even here in Singapore, Singapore Airlines, one of the most profitable airlines in the world, is having to, to take government money um, to, to stay alive. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a difficult one. Um, um, but there has to be a line drawn at some point. And I, I wish just some of this money would go to some of the smaller businesses that find it's very difficult to get access to, uh, to, to these funds. So, you know, um, you know, the sort of small, medium, SME sort of businesses, um, which kind of get put to the back of the queue. And it's becoming, I mean, it well, it always has been, but it's going to be an even bigger um, part of this story this year because it's just becoming so politicized, um, especially in the US, you know, coming up to an election. We're going to see all kinds of crazy stuff coming off the back of that. Oh, uh, totally. This is, you know, not just an economic issue. This is certainly uh, a political issue. Um you know, inequality is the probably, uh, you know, one of the biggest issues that um, certainly politically and geopolitically that, that we face all around the world. This is not just a Western world thing. This is not just a, a, an American thing. It, it, you know, it, it's it's a problem everywhere. And it's born out of um, economic policy to a certain extent. Um and so there's, you know, needs to be some radical changes, um, and which is why we're seeing, you know, the 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 polarization, you know, the move um, to nationalism on one side, and, um, and then to sort of extreme left wing uh, economic policies, you know, the return to, you know, the idea of, um, you know, very high taxes, uh, collectivization to a certain extent, you know, the, the middle ground in, in politics is certainly seen. Uh, the consensus seems to be that they've failed at, you know, provide, you know, producing a level um, economic playing field for everyone. Um, so certainly something has to change. Um, and it, you know, this this virus is, uh, it, you know, has has just added more fuel to the fire, um, unfortunately, because the, uh, the 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 segment of the economy that is suffering the most uh, is from what you know statistics is beginning to show is the bottom 25% um, because the bottom 25% of the income um, pyramid are the ones that generally can't work from home, um, the ones that have lost their jobs, you know, whether the, you know, the white off the white collar worker has been inconvenienced. Yes, they have to work at home, but they've 
more or less got some kind of income still. So, yeah, so the virus is just making this even more um, uh, acute, unfortunately. But if you're to look for a silver lining, well, maybe it, it acts as the catalyst to, to speed up some kind of, um, you know, radical policy thinking to, to try and address the problem. Um, you know, without it, maybe we would have just sort of stumbled on with the same old system um, throughout the 2020s. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly um, fast-forwarding many um, many sectors. Um, you know, one other area that I'm very interested in is homeschooling. That's just being put on, you know, full steam ahead. It's going to, you know, the adoption of that is going to be, you know, sped up by about 10 years. And hopefully um, Bitcoin too, as, as people get um, more of uh, a look into like this financial system that they're, you know, all of a sudden they're questioning, like you said earlier, is it, you know, where does this money come from? How can they just print it? Um, what do you mean my tax is going to, to bail out these companies? Um, you know, people that might never ever fly and or travel and now kind of learning that, you know, portion of their tax is going to be going to, to save these companies that they've never used or interacted with. Um, and, you know, then coming to the realization well, there's there's something else at play here. What's this Bitcoin thing that keeps popping up? Um, and is that uh, a viable option as a store of value and somewhere that I can, you know, start uh, saving my money? Um, but to bring it back to foreign exchange, mate, I, I want to ask you, uh, like about like a black swan event and what that looks like, or perhaps like um, an intervention in the markets, for example, like central bank intervention. Uh, what? Um, what does that look like from your side and, and how does that get dealt with? Uh, because when we were in Asia, you know, Bank of Japan, I remember, my goodness, they might intervene oh, multiple times per year. Yeah, so so central banks are, you know, are definitely active in, in the foreign exchange market. Um, they, have, they have dedicated uh, traders themselves to, to, to you know, their, their role is to... Uh, to monitor and to maintain their own currency uh, at a level that they think is fit or and proper for its domestic population, but also in terms of um, uh, trading on the you know in the global marketplace. They don't want a currency that is too strong uh, because they're if they're an exporting country, say like Japan, you mentioned, <clears throat> they don't want their currency. Uh, too strong because it makes their their products or you know the Jap Japanese technology products that we all buy. If the Japanese yen is very very strong for one reason or another, um, it makes the products expensive. We we're, we're less inclined to buy them as as global consumers. Um, conversely, uh, countries don't want their exchange rate too weak either. Now, whilst that makes their products on a global stage um, uh, cheap. And so it encourages their export. Um, it's not so good in terms of their domestic economy. Uh, a weak currency reflects a lack of faith in that currency. As all currencies since 1971, since we got rid of the gold standard, all currencies are just issued by banks. They're a, they're a, 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 it's like a social contract of trust. We, we, a currency is only worth as much as we all agree it to be worth. Um, and once that confidence goes, the currency becomes worthless. So uh, central banks have to make sure that their currency doesn't weaken too much. So it's trying to find a balance 
somewhere in between. Now, to do so, um, there are several examples of, of intervention. Um, and a central bank can intervene when the current, they think their currency is too weak or it's too strong. Often, um, certainly in, in the emerging market world where current, their currencies are generally seen to be a bit weaker and more vulnerable, um, a central bank will try and intervene to support its own currency. Now, this is actually very, very hard because what to do that, it has to buy back its own currency from the global markets. By doing so, it is buying, um, say, um, an example would be, so when uh, George Soros uh, attacked the pound, I think, well, Danny, you might remember, the, I think it's 87, the, the, the pound collapsed. Or might, you, you have to Wikipedia that one. Um, he speculated on the pound going low, and, and the pound got some momentum, and it went lower and lower and lower. So the UK government, the UK Treasury, uh, had to buy pounds in the market to try and support it. Um, the more pounds you buy, the you're raising the demand, so technically the price should go higher. But if the whole market is against you, uh, it's very difficult to support your currency because it has to use its foreign reserves to be able to buy those pounds. So it's buying those pounds with US dollars, and the every foreign government has only got a finite amount of US dollars. So it can only use a certain amount before it runs out of buying pounds, and it's, then it's just left with pounds, which could be worth a lot less. So that was that was an example of an unsuccessful um, defense of, of a currency, and, and ultimately the the the, the pounds sterling had to devalue. On the other side, um, like you said, the Japanese example, we've worked through many of those. Uh, similarly, the Swiss National Bank as well often get involved. Now, the Japanese and the Swiss intervene from the other side. Um, they, they are trying to make their currency weaker. Now, for that kind of intervention, is actually a lot easier for a central bank to do because what the opposite of what the UK government had to do, the Swiss or the Japanese government, all they have to do is sell their own currency. So the more they sell their currency, the lower it goes. So to sell their currency, they need their own currency. So what do they do? They print um, their own currency. So the Swiss National Bank, uh, and I went through a particularly volatile intervention uh, by the Swiss National Bank in 2015, I think it was, back at the beginning of the year, the Swiss franc had appreciated past the level that the Swiss National Bank was happy with. So they began aggressively and continually selling their own currency to weaken it. And because they can print as much Swiss francs as they like, because they're the Swiss National Bank, they have an infinite amount of ammunition to weaken their currency. So they're selling Swiss francs, they're buying US dollars, they're buying euros, they're buying Japanese yen. So they're actually accumulating more foreign currency reserves. Um, so intervention to weaken your currency is a lot more doable and often ends up with uh, the central bank in a better position than it was before because it's now holding all these foreign uh, reserves and often got other assets such as gold as well. Um, so it can increase its commodity holdings at the same time as weaken its own currency. And as I say, it's got an infinite amount 
<clears throat> excuse me, it's got an infinite amount of ammunition to do so. So when this happens, it often happens violently and quickly. Um, you won't get a pre-announcement. You'll just see the market move. And then often once the market has moved a substantial amount, uh, more than a normal amount um, it normally would do in a day, people become suspicious and often the central bank will announce that yes, it is involved in the uh, in the in the in the markets to intervene in its currency. And then often people will try and back away because they don't want to fight um, the central bank unless the central bank is trying to support the currency. Often then hedge funds and uh, big institutions may think that they can withstand the central bank. Uh, support, but if it, if the central bank's trying to weaken their currency, more often than not, um, institutions will probably step away and just let the market reset to the level that the central bank is happy with, and then things return to a, a level of calm. And that that exchange rate um, it then becomes the kind of sort of a median benchmark around which daily trading. Um, continues going forward, and when they're doing that, they um, when they're printing to weaken their own currency. Um, who are they first? So, if we use the Swiss National Bank as perfect example, do they have like preferred banks that they do that through, or how do they like? How does it kind of disseminate into the market? I, I think they will have, um, like all customers do. They, I think they will have um, uh, preferred um, go-to banks that. They feel that can execute, um, you know, in in a, in a professional way, um, but but you have to remember that they don't want to keep this a secret. Really, the whole point is they want people to know they're intervening. They want to scare people off. Uh, they want to, you know, they want to stop the people who are, who are strengthening their currency. Um, and to do so, you want to probably throw as much ammunition into as many different avenues as possible. Um, you know, if you restrict it just to one or two banks, it, it doesn't get the kind of coverage that you probably want. Um, which, hence, why they actually announce it and say, "Look, yes, we are, we're in the markets now. Step away." Basically, is what they're saying. So they will go, they will do it through a, a, a whole array of different um, uh, um, sort of, uh, avenues of, of trading. Well, so. You know, stark reminder to anybody that's sitting out there thinking about opening a foreign exchange trading account with like Robinhood or someone, um, you know, just don't do it. This is not a game you're ever going to win, right? This is... <laughs> could could you back me up on that one? I've had people yeah. ask me all the time, oh, should I start trading foreign exchange? It looks like a good way to make money. I'm like, it's about the quickest way you'll lose money. Yes, yes. Um, it's... I mean, it definitely... It, do, it doesn't get as much attention as the equity markets. I mean, you know, the S and P five hundred, and you know, the, the Robinhood traders there. You know, that's the that's the sort of go to sexy asset uh, class, right? And the ETS and stuff. That well, foreign exchange doesn't get quite the same sort of focus, um, and it is a, a lower, it is a less volatile market for most of the time. But the, it, it's very unpredictable as well, and you really have to do. You know, when you're picking your currencies, you really have to do a little bit of. If you're investing, you know, you're thinking long term, you really have to do a little bit of homework um, and be ready for some unpredictable news headlines, um, central bank intervention, um, interest rate changes. Uh, you know, unexpected interest rate changes. So, uh, yeah, it, it's 
it, it can be a treacherous place to be in, that's for sure. And if we look at an example of um, like a hedge fund, you know, these are guys that sit around and they will do the, the real deep analytical stuff. Um, I've had Parker Lewis on the on the podcast before and he was working at Heyman Capital when he was trawling through the um, the Fed minutes to get to the bottom of, you know, what was going on. He was reading the Fed minutes from like years and years before. And uh, he came to the conclusion that QE was inevitable like that there was there's was nothing else that was going to happen so they are now armed with that information but that took like hours and hours weeks months of um, of deep research and then they can go and put on a position and um you know Carl Bass has famously been beating the drum about um, China devaluing for for many years um and they will put on huge positions uh one year to two years out but still, these things don't. It's not transpired. There's. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? Like, um, like let's talk about like notional value. How much are these guys um, putting on when they come in and they do these trades on size? I mean, with some of the big hedge funds, um, you know, you know, are, are putting on hundreds of millions of, uh, of, of dollars uh, per trade. Um, you know, at, at any one time, or, or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of options. Also, um, that's not an un- uncommon notional or, or trade amount. Um, so, you know, the, the pretty big positions, as I said, you know, the daily, the daily spot market is five trillion a day. Um, and I think this, the, the stock market daily t- uh, traded amount is not even in the trillion. So, you know, the, the huge amounts are going through. Uh, and, you know, just, just referring to hedge funds, you know, these guys are not, um, these guys, as you say, are putting on trades looking out to two years, um, and, th- and this is where time horizon is is so important when you're thinking about trading these things. You, it's not just about where you think the level uh, is going. Whether you are you think the U.S. dollar is going higher or lower, you you need to sort of fix a framework of of what time scale you you thinking about because a dollar bull and a dollar bear can be right at the same time. It just depends on what time frame they're looking at so you know someone like Carl Bass who he, yes he's look he's he's been as you say banging the drum on on um renminbi and uh, hong kong dollar um devaluation for a long time but he, he still has that conviction he's still fully invested in that um but he's looking out for five years he's not expecting it to happen in a week so when you're thinking about trading any asset um whether it's fx or not you know are you it's quite possible that the u.s dollar could weaken for six months, and then there's a devaluation against uh, renminbi devaluation. The dollar skyrockets next year. Um, so both both um, outcomes can be simultaneously correct. It's just over the time frame. Um, and a lot of these hedge funds, when they put on these massive positions, are not thinking day to day, even week to week. Sometimes not even month to month. They are really. You know, they have dedicated guys who maybe look at one or two currencies, and they're reading everything about that country, about the geopolitical situation, the uh, economic policies, what government's going to be there next uh, in the next election cycle, etc. So they're really doing deep, deep dive research on on a very um, small group of currencies. They have their conviction, they have their framework, their time horizon, and they put on these really big trades. For most of us, you know, we don't have the, you know, the time, uh, the resources, 
and and you know and often the informational connections to be able to you know go that deep into it so we're you know like any asset we're often uh, you know as personal traders investors we're you know we look on a much shorter time horizon um, so, so, so the criteria you're looking at are perhaps, perhaps different. So, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest trying to uh, imitate or mimic uh, hedge fund um, protocol or methodology because they are <clears throat> looking in a, a much more in-depth and often long-duration kind of um, a- aspect. Yeah. Very, very good advice. And um, yeah, well put, mate. Can we, um, can we talk about a scandal? Are there any that um, that jumped to mind that um, you saw Not pretty, um, you know, a bit too close to comfort for? <laughs> no, we'll leave your skeletons in the cupboard. But um, you know, uh, th- there's been several, right? There's you know been Sockgen, uh, NAB, uh, LIBOR, uh, for example, um, like the um, the spot rate uh, fixing scandal. Is there anything there that um, you could uh, perhaps help the listeners understand? One of those. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so the, you know the, the rogue trader incidents are pretty famous. You know, even a, a, amongst non-industry people, I mean, everyone of a certain age will remember. You know, probably the first famous one, Nick Leeson in uh, 1995, out here in sunny Singapore. Uh, he he uh, ended uh, bearings, um, and then yes, there's the Sock Gen. I can't remember his name, um, and then there was one at my own UBS um, back in the late 2000s or soon after the financial crisis, wonderfully. Um, <clears throat> so those incidents, without going into any of them too specifically, basically involved um, excessive risk-taking combined with um, poor monitoring and sort of uh, uh, technological oversight. And by that, I mean there were individual traders who were able to take, put on big trading positions, take a lot of risk, often beyond what they were meant to. When they get into that position, um, they panic, try and recoup uh, losses. Um, very much in a similar scenario or <clears throat> analogy to you know to to the roulette player at a casino who keeps losing, keeps losing, but then he increases his bets, increases bets, thinking that he'll, he'll, he'll make it back this time. He'll make it, you know, it's, you know, very, we all know that, you know, often you dig yourself into a bigger hole. And that's what happened um, with these um, uh, rogue, rogue traders is that they got themselves into a hole um, and felt they could get out on their own and um, failed to do so. And then secondly, when you don't have a system in place where these things are spotted, um, you know, by the back office or by um, market regulation, uh, you, you know, there, there, there has to be checks and balances in place. And banks, certainly since these incidents happened, and I don't want to jinx the banking community now because there hasn't been a major one recently, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but the, the, the safety procedures now um, – prevent people are always going to make mistakes and people are always going to lose money but if you have those safety um nets in place then you can catch the problem early before um it, it, it's made worse so you know i don't think these guys uh particularly those these particular rogue traders uh were particularly they weren't trying to bring the bank down the banks down but you know they were 
stupid in trying to hide their mistakes, uh, obviously devious, and so, and the system wasn't there to to, to catch them. Um, on the other side of scandal, um, which is definitely still going on and more common, is is what you alluded to, like the LIBOR and you know various investigations that have gone on over the past five years. <clears throat> Uh, and that's about, about on trading desks, um, collusion amongst traders between different banks and stuff. Now, this, this, you know, this is a uh, was a real problem um, that was let uh, left to um, go on probably far too long, and was you know sort of um, ignored as just part of the you know it's part of the environment, it's part of the territory, it just goes on. Uh, you know, again. There are there are some examples of really you know over um, very bad behaviour where people have explicitly gone out to cheat a client or cheat another bank or uh, you know by colluding by sharing information they shouldn't do uh, by front running positions of customers uh, i.e. jumping into a position before they've. Um, they've executed the customer position to to benefit from any gains. Uh, that that's all, all been a common um, that's been a common uh, phenomenon since markets existed. Um, but we we only recently just come into grips with being a bit more strict about monitoring and and and, and punishing it. Um, so yeah, there definitely was. I think certainly born out of the eighties and nineties a culture of. You know, a bit of the old boys club. You know, a lot of information was shared that probably shouldn't have been shared over drinks at the pub after work or whatever, in a very informal um, environment. And then, you know, in the technological age where we're all on chat rooms and stuff, that kind of continued and that, you know, began to break, become even more taboo. And, you know, some sensitive client information, market information um, gets shared around. Um, all too readily and taken advantage of at the expense of customers and you know and and retail investors who you know again are the ones who are the last to know about this kind of stuff so but in my last few years at the bank i certainly know that um legal and compliance teams in all the banks um have doubled triple in my time there easily um and and you know this kind of this kind of occurrence. What whilst even while I was there, I I was personally never privy or witness to any such kind of uh, activity. But it was sort of known that it, you know there were anecdotal stories. That it went on. Um, but uh, as I said, legal and compliance teams in in banks now are a lot more dominant and have a lot more control and oversight. Um, so hopefully, like the rogue trader episodes, we we see that kind of behaviour uh, diminish as well. Um, it has to be said, banks since two thousand and eight have, uh, f- you know, from being you know probably the most hated industry and sector in the world um, for for a lot of good reasons, you know, lending irresponsibly, etc. Um, but there's been a massive regulatory uh, revolution uh, since then. Um, and financial in terms of their capitalization. So hopefully they continue on that path. And if we kind of like wrap it up, I think we've delved way um, way down into uh, the rabbit hole of foreign exchange. Um, try and end on a on a Bitcoin note um, because um, you you've I know um, swallowed the red pill that I've been trying to shove down your neck. 
and um, <laughs> and started um, started the the journey of learning about Bitcoin and uh, interacting with it uh, to some extent. And you know, what, what's your kind of take on it so far? Because you, you're obviously coming at it like I did from a financial markets perspective. Um, many, you know, there's a saying in the space: all roads lead to Bitcoin because the, the, the like the, the spectrum of people that come into Bitcoin. Uh, is truly, you know, all-encompassing. Um, so, if you're coming at it from like a financial markets kind of perspective, um, what's kind of drawn you to it um, to start with? And you know, what what are you slowly kind of um, learning about it? Uh, well, slowly is definitely um, <clears throat> the the uh, right adverb there. I I'm, I'm learning bit by bit, um, very very slowly. Um, I would know. I would say I was. I wasn't a, a a skeptic at all. I was probably just more apprehensive and um, uh, just not knowledgeable enough to have the confidence to to invest in it. But increasingly over the last couple of years, and certainly this year, um, if we're going to argue its case. I mean, because I'm sure you're better and have done on your podcast I've listened to, you know, you, the technological arguments, the infrastructure arguments, um, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the one, the, the right person to argue on, on that front. But from a financial perspective, um, I think people, once they stop seeing it as, well, it, it's just as money or potential money, I don't think Bitcoin's future is as money per se, but it is a it is becoming a store of value uh, in a way that um, gold is now. We could have an argument about gold as well. People often say, "Well, gold. Why is gold valuable?" Well, gold. It, this quick answer is gold is valuable because it is valuable. People want it. It's in demand. It's finite. It's small. It's been historically a, a store of value and and also money for a long period of our human history now bitcoin is to me is kind of evolving into like the uh technological version of gold um its volatility has dropped massively over over um recent uh you know recent couple of years certainly the last six months or so um uh, you know a lower volatility is, is a sign of the asset sort of maturing somewhat um as you get more and more different players in it's not just a you know, uh, a very niche group who invested it now. I'm in it now, and I'm certainly not a crypto geek or, uh, uh, um, you know, an expert by any means. Um, but as it, as the volatility drops and the asset matures and it's beginning, getting a widespread um, attention from all different quarters now, even, even central banks are starting to say, I know they don't like it, but they're talking about making their own digital money. So we may end up with digital money other than Bitcoin, but I still think there's going to be a place for Bitcoin in the world um, as a store of value, um, whatever that may mean. And we won't, we don't, we don't even know. And, it, and it's kind of pointless guessing, to be honest. But there, I, I am confident that it will be around in five, ten years uh, for sure. It, what medium it's used for, or it's if it's like gold, or if it is like a, a, a fiat currency, I really don't know. And in the climate now where every single central bank in the world is falling over themselves, devaluing their currency, uh, you know, 
through and added with this coronavirus, you know, the, the, the amount of stimulus, the amount of debt uh, in all of the Western world is unprecedented. And sooner or later, you can't keep uh, debasing your fiat currency to such an extent where it, 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 it retains value. It, these currencies, these, these, uh, sorry, these currencies, all of these currencies have to eventually devalue. Now, you don't see big fluctuations in the foreign exchange market because they're all against each other and they're all, all of the central banks are behaving in exactly the same way. So the dollar is intrinsically losing value. You can tell the, be the best benchmark of that is looking at the price of gold over the last year. The gold, gold is, go is almost back to its all-time highs. Now, that is, a, that is a reflection of the fact that all currencies are going lower against assets I, in the long term, is my opinion. Now, some are going to go quicker than others. Whether you think the US dollar is going to remain stronger for longer than the euro, uh, that's another debate. But big picture as a whole, as a basket, I think fiat currencies are in trouble because the zero rate interest policy is going to be around for a long time. We need other stores of value. And I believe that it won't be the only one, but I do believe Bitcoin will act as a store of value um, and a store of confidence um, as money drifts away from traditional fiat currencies. Perfectly put, mate. Perfectly put. Yeah, you, you, are, you, are, you are on the fast train down the rabbit hole, my friend. There's no stopping. <laughs> there's no stopping you now. <laughs> this, I, I'm sure, there's going to be listeners just like smiling from ear to ear, listening to you. Um, you know, describe it that way. Um, yeah, and what you said there about like central banks around the world just fighting each other to, you know, falling over each other to to print their own currency. You know, this this happened in the UK just last week. I think it was like a hundred billion. Was it? Um, what was the? Yeah. What was it? Was right. Was, I, 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 is that the right amount? Yeah, and uh, I can't remember. I mean, there have been so many numbers that have been chucked out. I mean, the US numbers are just insane. We've become yeah. immune to that. Like, first of all, we've become yeah. immune to the point people think, oh, you know, what's the difference between a billion and a trillion? It's like, well, try writing the numbers down on a piece of paper <laughs> because, yeah. you know, it just, it's, but our minds can't process it. And, what we see in the headlines is, you know, in the UK, for example, they dress it up as we are doing this to help you. This is for the people. This is what we've come to. We went into this dark, closed room and we come out, you know, we're all very, very smart people. I'm going to come out here and hold this red case up and tell you what the budget's going to be. And you're going to think, you know, this is all for your, your benefit. Whereas really all they're doing is shitting themselves and trying to print as much of their own currency because we are in a currency war, a global currency war. Totally, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be a whole generation that probably grow up not knowing what interest rate is. You know, put money in a bank, you know, even when we were kids, Danny won't say a date, but, um, you know, you could put money in, in a bank account and earn 5 6%, right? Um you know, th th those days are long gone. And, you know, like gold, Bitcoin is a finite supply. I don't know what the date is. You probably know the date. You've probably got the date tattooed on your arm <laughs> of when the last coin is going to be mined. Um, but it's a long time away, isn't it? Um, but there's a finite amount. Again, there is literally only, was it 230 million going to be mined or something? 21 million. And in 2140. Oh, 21. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm just reading from my tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yes, it's um for for those people that are listening, you, yeah, you're 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 totally right. Not only are they not going to know what an interest rate is, we potentially stand um, the chance of a generation thinking negative interest rates and normal. Like that's madness. Yeah, I mean, I th- that that's even more perverse. I think in a way, right? It's yeah, that that that's very unnatural. I think. Yeah, it it just leaves me speechless every time people talk about negative interest rates and aren't enraged by it. It's like, you know, you you would not give your money to someone and then expect less back. That doesn't unless of course yeah, you're buying okay. something as a medium of exchange, of course, but as an investment. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So so if you've got some savings and you you can't put it into your bank account because you're going to be paying the bank t- for the pr- privilege, you don't want to put it under your mattress because you don't want to get burgled. Well, why don't you buy some bitcoin? Precisely. And it doesn't have to be a lot, right? It can be in just one to five percent of you know whatever it is that you have. Um, you know, don't go crazy and putting it all in straight into Bitcoin, but just take one yeah. to five percent of whatever those savings are and just diversify into this this other asset that has turned up um, is already eleven years old, uh, has already proved itself to be a better store of value than any other asset that's ever existed. Um, you know, in this short pe- period of time, it's time for people to. Um, start looking into it and uh, this is the, this is the reason of this podcast and this is the reason of um, inviting people like yourself to come on and explain so eloquently you know what's going on in like the, the legacy system how that works and um, you know lifting the lid on that for us so really appreciate it mate thank you uh, so much for um, for coming on and uh, sharing all of that um, I usually ask um, a question at the end of each show. Uh, if you could convince one person to take a closer look at Bitcoin, um, who could then go and share that message with their following, um, who would that person be and why? Uh, if I could try and persuade someone, maybe it would be someone out of my generation, um, someone older, possibly my, my father, um, because I, I think, you know, the young generations have, you know, are pretty clued in on, on this already. You know, they don't need to be, you know, convinced. Uh, but I think possibly, you know, the generation, our parents' kind of generation, you know, who, you know, are either in retirement or beginning to retire and, and seeing some of the traditional assets they have um, potentially at risk. Um, and maybe it's that generation that maybe needs one extra level, bit of diversity, like you said, a small amount. Diversity is good. Never, whatever asset is, you know, you don't want to be just holding one thing. But maybe you know, more of that generation needs uh, would benefit from a little bit more diversity um, by by you know taking a, a little bit of a plunge there. Fully agree, mate. And there's so much wealth locked up in that generation that's going to be lost if it's not diversified into into something like Bitcoin, um, you know, it, it will be lost in the form of um, like uh, inheritance taxes and things like that. So I think, you know, just taking anywhere between one to five percent to to protect uh, the generations following you uh, in that way is, um, well, it's, be, it's beyond being prudent. It's you know, it, yeah, it's, and, and you know, p- pension funds are are not uh, invincible. So you know. Pension funds can disappear along with people's assets. You know, Bitcoin is a way of, uh, 
you know, being more responsible for your own, um, you know, financial security as well. Um, you know, 50 years ago, maybe you, you dig a hole and bury some gold in your garden, but this is another way of, you know, you know, taking a bit more control over, um, you know, over your own um, finances and protecting yourself against any sort of exogenous event um, attack on your, your, you know, more traditional assets. Yeah, perfect, mate. Well, thanks again for coming on, James, and um, taking the time. Really appreciate everything. Um, is there anything um, you want to close out on? Uh, no, that's. Uh, I think I've banged on for long enough. But thank you very much for having me. I've uh, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Always good to uh, always good to catch up. Have a have a great Sunday. Yeah, yeah, and you likewise. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that one. Um, taking a walk through the um, the the murky waters of uh, what goes on in. Uh, I don't know, you know, on a foreign exchange trading desk day to day. Uh, you know, James was one side of the phone. He was um, dealing with, um, well, as he described, you know, his day to day was was dealing with uh, like big corporations or um, hedge funds or his own sales desk. Um, you know, sat, sat behind him would have been a, a sales desk because you can't handle every customer um, as uh, the foreign exchange trader. Uh, there'd be a sales desk behind him that is out there uh, talking to their own clients, building relationships with uh, with new corporations to to bring into the mix, and then the sales desk would liaise with James and and his team um, for you know, like this as he was trying to describe. This didn't stop. This was constant. You know, um, sure you would have um, lulls in the day, um, or maybe uh, maybe even a week might go by where it seemed pretty quiet, but. Every day, there's you know, as he um, as he explained, trillions of dollars being exchanged uh, all around the world, and you know what he touched on there with the with the currency wars and how banks intervene and why banks intervene, central banks intervene, and you know what's going on at the moment. Uh, and it's nice to see that he's fallen into the rabbit hole. It's been uh, it's been a long time trying to red pill some of my friends and. Um, you know, former colleagues and clients that uh, I've remained close with since I you know, stepped away from the business. Uh, so, just to paint a little bit of a picture of what would go on on my side, um, James would um, would get one of these orders, perhaps, and uh, click straight into a um, a direct line uh, to me or one of his other brokers. There would have been um, four brokers that he could have used at the time, and uh, then he would have relayed the information that he needed. Uh, perhaps he would need a um, a six-month uh, dollar yen 120 strike uh, in like 150 million dollars or something. Uh, that would mean my job was then to relay relay that to my team. Um, I was uh, part of a team in Singapore. We also had a team in Tokyo handling uh, Japanese accounts. And um, if we were overlapping with London, of course, towards the back end of our day. Uh, relaying the information to London. And we would go into the marketplace and ask all of the other banks to price this this particular option. Then I'd go back to James with the price and he would um, uh, decide whether he he needed to uh, to buy or sell at, uh, at that certain rate. Um, and then we would work that interest for him. And um, you know, at any one time, uh, a desk like the one I was working on might be working on anything between... Oh, we we could have had 
upwards of 50, 60 of these uh, different options in different currencies, different dates, different strikes at any one time and, you know, spreading against each other. And it was, um, like you said, it was exciting work. It was definitely, it kept your brain very, very sharp. It kept you um, on your toes. Um, so, I, you know, I wanted to kind of get across a little bit how that market worked. I hope this has helped fill in some gaps. Um, <laughs> if you've ever thought about trading in foreign exchange, please don't. <laughs> it's just, it's a fool's errand. Don't get, don't get dragged into that. Please, if, you, if you're thinking about um, investing your money, well, we're forced to invest our money, right? Because of um, these, uh, this inflationary monetary system that we are all a slave to. Um, any money we get, we, you know, if, if we save it, if we do the prudent thing and save it, we are not, we, we, we're still losing out. You know, our, our savings, our interest rates are at zero and inflation is at two or three percent. So we're forced to look for something to invest in. And guys, please just look at Bitcoin. <laughs> this is, this is the message that I want to get across. Please just start looking at Bitcoin if you're not already. Um, and to leave it on that note, if, if you are going to start looking at Bitcoin, if you're in the US, head over to swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten. Uh, they're in every state except New York. And you can start just slowly, $10 a week, 20 a week, 30 a week, whatever it is, just start, you know, start your journey. Uh, they'll help educate you as well. They've got a brilliant team. And if you're in the UK, you can head over to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Same kind of ethos bitcoin only companies i've interviewed both founders you can go listen to obi from CoinFloor on my previous episodes or if you want to listen to the swan guys uh jan pritzker at skwp i have an interview with him and also with Corey clipston uh just scroll through my list and find those interviews and you'll get a feel for the people that are running these companies that are building these um these onboarding you know ramps for people like yourself to come in and start using bitcoin or if you're already down the rabbit hole just um you know diversify and start stacking and um diversify away from like the, the exchanges that you might already be using and go to uh, a different um bitcoin only uh, service um, not diversifying into any other shit coins or stocks or shares or god forbid no foreign exchange you stick to bitcoin people You'll be happy you did in the next three to five years. And, um, you know, then 10, 50, 100 years, you know, we're talking like we're setting up generations here. So I will leave it there. I don't want to ramble on anymore. Big thanks to James. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Reach out on Twitter and uh, I'll see you on the next show. Thanks always, guys. Thank you so much for listening.